Hello everyone, my name is Andrew Vitek and this is my wife Dawn. Uh, we're shooting from our home here in Lakeville and we have some scriptures we'd love to read to you today. The scriptures we will be reading to you today are Isaiah chapter 56 verses 1 through 8 and Mark chapter 11 verses 12 through 25, both from the NIV translation. So beginning with Isaiah 56 1 through 8, this is what the Lord says, maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people, and let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them, besides those already gathered. And Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you for your sins. Thank you so much, Vtex. It was so good to see your faces as well. Uh, church, it is good to be together again, as I said. Thank you, band, uh, for your praise to God, the offerings that we bring before him in our mind, in our body, in our spirit. And so as we consider these scriptures today, just a question to have you uh, get started is, I want you to think about if you've lost it during this pandemic. 
Like, have you kind of lost it in an angry way? Maybe you felt the angst of police brutality and racial injustice and you lost it. Or maybe you felt the frustration of the educational or vocational gaps of the spring or the coming fall and you lost it. Or maybe you just had a bad day and you lost it with your family. Uh, The Bible does say in your anger, do not sin. So I have to believe that as we read these stories, when Jesus jumps into this angry fit in the temple, that he's somehow expressing anger without sinning. And even if that's not peculiar enough, Jesus then sounds irrational and irritated when he curses this fig tree for not bearing fruit, even though it technically supposedly wasn't the season for bearing fruit. So we have to ask, what in the world is going on? How could Jesus give us this example of it's okay to get angry when when this stuff is happening? Is it is it that? Is it that he's just giving us an excuse to be angry when people do wrong things? Or as I've heard people say before, it's okay to get angry when the situation deserves anger. I mean, God gave us the emotion of anger, and the Bible does say, in our anger, do not sin, so we can be angry and not sin. I think it's, it's a little bit of a side note to the text today, but I think it's a good word for us today in this global health pandemic and racial injustice and educational concerns and an election coming up that people are angry, they're exhausted, they're overwhelmed, they're impatient. And then add to that, the COVID pandemic is just magnifying what was already there. So we live in this unashamedly self-absorbed culture. I mean, think about it. You go through a week in your life, let alone a day, and you don't hear a flood of messages that are all about you that promise personal happiness or success or just fun in the midst of this. I think every one of us are bombarded by messages every day that push us towards living self-centered rather than Christ-centered. And if we're not careful, that can creep into our worship where it becomes a place of indulgence rather than sacrifice, where it can become about our preferences, our power, or our position, rather than about Jesus. So the question I think of today, as we consider where we're at today, as we consider the text that we read today, is how are we to live? And how are we to worship? And how are we to live in our worship with all that's going on? So, Why don't you turn, if you have your Bibles, with me to the text of today, and we will pray as we want the Lord to meet us in this moment. Father, I thank you that you are always present, that you are with us where two or three are gathered in your name, you are there in the midst of them. I believe that's true whether we are virtually together or whether we are physically together. We come together in your name and we ask that you would meet us by your word and by your spirit and that we would be open and receptive to what you have to say to us today about our life and about our worship and the way we live. Amen. So as we turn to our scripture today, just a few things that I noticed about the text. First, this this fig tree You know, does Jesus ever curse a fig tree or any other living object in his life or his ministry? I don't don't think so. Second, uh, it would take a miracle for a fully healthy, uh, all green-leafed fig tree to wither and die in a day. 
And the text says from the roots up. So something more has to be happening here. And then, and then this is Jesus' last recorded miracle in Mark's gospel. A miracle that brings death instead of life. So, again, I think something more has to be happening. Third, is it just coincidence that the temple incident happens in the middle of the fig tree incident? And then finally, was Jesus throwing over tables really just about corrupt people turning the worship of God into greedy business practices? Those are, the, those are the questions that I have, that I'm wondering. And so we're going to look at how the cursing of the fig tree helps explain Jesus' action in the temple and then think about what it means for us today. So that's where we're going. So let's start at this fig tree. Jesus sees this leafy fig tree in the distance and he wonders if there's any fruit on it. Now, fruit trees in public places are like the fast food restaurants of the first century. They didn't have McDonald's or Arby's or whatever else, you know, your fancy is, but they had these fruit trees on the sides of roads and, and people could go and pick them. But when he goes to that fig tree, he finds no fruit. And so he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, which sounds odd, but the clue is in the next sentence. And that's the disciples heard him say it. So it's not really about the tree. It's really about what the tree represents. Again, Jesus then enters the temple. And when you hear that, I don't want you to hear of walking into church because we want to think more like the Mall of America. Because when you, now just imagine, you know, this is totally hypothetical, okay? You, your, your daughter's MacBook needs a little tune-up before she goes to college. So you decide to drive to the Mall of America because you haven't been able to get online for an appointment and you forget exactly where the Mall of America, where that Apple store is in the mall. So you park on the wrong side of the lot and then you drive or then you walk in, you remember to mask up and you avoid all the other shops. You check the kiosk, you get to the Apple store. You're so excited as you get there. And then suddenly your hopes that were this high are now crushed at the closed doors and the employees with the crossed arms and the masks and the sign on the doors that say like, no genius appointments unless you have an online reservation. And so you stand in front of the doors with the most pleading eyes you can and your arms shaking as you're holding this MacBook up and, and there's nothing you can do because all the online reservations are booked out for weeks and every day they fill up right away and so you haven't been able to get in for months and unless you find your cousin Vinny who works there, you're not getting in. <laughs> now, the illustration does break down a little, but... That's kind of like what going to the temple was like. The temple was actually the central institution of Israel's economic, political, and religious life. So economically, the temple didn't just dominate the skyline of Jerusalem. It was one of the highest points of the whole city. But for most people who lived in that city, the temple was their means of employment. It served as the main bank the capital, and the stock exchange. Politically, the temple was the source and symbol of God's, uh, the source of power for the wealthy and the priestly hierarchy. It was the people who ruled Judea under the Roman governor. And then religiously, 
The temple was the symbol of God's abiding favor and presence among the people. It marked the separation between what was secular and what was sacred. But it also separated the priests from the people, the men from the women, the Jews from the non-Jews, the abled from the disabled, and the powerful from the poor. See, all of that happened at the temple. There were literally signs around the temple that made it clear who could enter what part of the temple and who couldn't, who had access to God's presence and who didn't. And the temple had become this place where the powerful dominated, controlled, and exploited those who ranked lower. It preserved the status quo by extending privileges to a few and resisting the transformative power of what God was trying to do in their midst. And the theology, even the theology that supported the temple system said that if you're poor or suffering or oppressed, it's because you sinned against God. There couldn't be any systematic thing. So to be forgiven, you had to bring your offering, your sacrifice to God, but that sacrifice had to be purchased at the temple with approved money and approved sacrifices. So there was like a double exploitation going on against the poor. See, the temple had become this national symbol of pride, but it actually separated God's people from the people who needed God. See, earlier in Jesus' ministry, he enters the temple as a teacher and he taught among the courts often. But in this day, at this time, he enters the temple as a prophet. And the prophet isn't there to to teach a lesson. The prophet is there to prove a point. And that's exactly what Jesus does. It's not about this concrete result of clearing out all of the money changers. It is to prove a prophetic point. In fact, he's not trying to clean up the current way they worship. He's symbolically critiquing the very function of the temple and calling for its destruction. And that might sound strong, but the reason I'm pretty confident about that is because of what Jesus says when he quotes these two prophets. So the first one he quotes is the prophet Isaiah. It's when he talks about this house of prayer for all nations. He says in Isaiah 56, 7, these... I will bring up to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This whole scripture, this whole Isaiah 56, is about a promise from God for all those who think they are excluded from God's salvation. He talks about the foreigner in verse 3 who's joined himself with other people. He talks about the eunuch in verse 4 who's not allowed to enter the temple according to the law of Moses. And he talks about the outcasts of Israel. All of these people would not have been able to come into the temple, certainly not into the inner courts of the temple. And so Jesus isn't just quoting Bible verses in this moment. He's actually inviting the outcasts. He's healing the physically disabled. He's welcoming the foreigners. And he expects the temple to embody that radical, inclusive love. But the various ethnic and purity barriers in the temple have been preventing that. In fact, you could argue that they've been fostering this xenophobia and ethnocentrism. Fancy words to say they wanted to focus on themselves and people who were like them. 
and the divisions between race and class and gender would never be settled as long as the temple stood as with its, all its holy barriers telling different groups, no entry for you. So Jesus calls an end to that. Second, Jesus quotes the prophet Jeremiah when he calls them a den of robbers. Now, I've always focused on the robbers part of it, which is why I thought this was just about corrupt temple practices. But let's read that scripture together. It's Jeremiah 7, verses 5 through 11. Jeremiah says that if you really change your ways and your actions and you deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow the other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury and burn incense to Baal and follow other gods? You have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has my house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. See, Jeremiah is warning the people that the Lord is watching how they treat each other and how they treat God. The people in Jeremiah's day had been oppressing the vulnerable. They'd been living self-centered. They'd been trusting in other gods instead of the Lord God. And the prophet says, don't think you can act like that and then walk into God's house and be safe from God's judgment. See, thieves don't go into a den to do business. They don't go into a den to find God. They go into a cave to retreat after they have committed their crimes. The den of robbers is a hideout. It's a place of safety and security. So the temple and this robber's den comment is not Jesus as an outrage against these dishonest business practices. It's a judgment against people who think they can find their forgiveness and fellowship with God no matter how they act. Think about that. And then think about what it happens, what it might mean for our life. Do people run around thinking they can find forgiveness and fellowship with God no matter how they act in the rest of their life? And the fig tree episode, this whole cursing and then withering, bookends that story and supports it. This is something that Mark does. So this is your, this is your free educational seminary moment, okay? So Mark uses this fancy literary sandwich technique called intercalation as it's called in seminary, where he takes two different events that have similar themes, and then he starts one of the events and then interrupts it with this different event and then comes back to the first event to help them interpret one another. This has been your free educational seminary moment. <laughs> so the fig tree looks like it has something to eat, but it has nothing just like the temple looks like it can be a place where people can be redeemed and restored with God, except it's not. It's become a refuge for robbers. It's become corrupt and a barrier. And the last key that says this is about judgment and not about just the dishonesty of what's going on is this word season. So when Jesus says, 
cursed you, may you never bear fruit again, even though it wasn't the season for fruits. The word season should be the season, the, the word that marks a time in the year, like harvest time, planting time, growing time. It's a chronological word that would mark a length of time, except that's not the word he uses. He uses the word kairos, which is a significant moment that is not measured in length of time. It's a moment you don't want to miss. That's the word he uses, which sounds totally out of place unless you put the events together. This was a moment that, that fruit could have been provided just like the temple was a place that should have provided forgiveness and refuge, and it doesn't happen. And then the fact that the tree withers from the roots up indicates that this is a total miracle and complete judgment against an innocent tree. So if Jesus, the prophet, can bring that kind of judgment against an innocent tree, can you just imagine the kind of judgment that he's bringing against the temple? But see, we don't have to imagine. Jesus has been replacing the role and the power and the place of the temple all throughout his ministry. He's announced forgiveness to the outcasts. He's healed the sick. He's restored the oppressed back into society. That's what he's done. He's replaced the tables of the money changers where worshipers go to pay for their atonement, their, their getting back in rightness with God, with the Lord's table, the place of communion, the place where Jesus will announce that the offering of his life will pay for forgiveness of all sin. That's what's happening. And the pouring out of his blood will replace the system of animal sacrifices forever. And when Jesus is crucified, the temple curtain that separated God's presence from even the priests, let alone the men or the women or the Jews or the Gentiles, that gets torn in two and forever the barrier is removed between God and people. And Jesus' sacrificial death now marks the place where humankind can be reconciled to God and his resurrection shows where humans can remain with God always. And that, friends, is really good news. So what I think the Holy Spirit wants us to imagine in this story is where we've been all leaves and no fruit. Where do we look like we're going to be a place of refreshment except we provide none? Where do we look like we're going to be a place of hope but provide none? Where do we look like we're going to be a place of generosity and yet don't share? If we look beyond ourselves, I think this has to ask us, where have we allowed, just like the temple, the political, the economic, and the religious practices in our lives to become corrupt which actually are causing oppression and segregation. And then looking within ourselves, where have we allowed the political, the economic, and the religious practices in our own life to bring us peace and security and power that only God is supposed to give us? I remember uh, in college, I had a friend, I'm just going to call her Katie, and Katie was a fun gal. She, 
She was a really joy to be around. I think part of the reason that she was fun was she loved to party. Every Friday night, every Saturday night, you could expect that she would be out having a good time, and then we'd, we'd actually have a good time hearing about her good time. And one time when we were just in a one-on-one situation, I asked her um, about her faith. Now, it wasn't like she had just told me how she partied, and I'm like, oh, what is Jesus to you? I was in a situation where we were talking about things that are meaningful to us. She brought up her faith, and I said, you know, it's, it sounds like it's really important for you to be at church on Sundays. And she, dead straight face, said to me, oh my gosh, yeah, if I can't make it to Mass and to confession on Sunday morning, then everything I did on Friday and Saturday night is going to be with me. There's no way I can have peace with God. And only Jesus knows whether her faith was genuine or not. But in that moment, I realized that in Katie's mind, the way she lived Monday through Saturday had no bearing on what happened on Sunday. And that God wouldn't speak to her about the rest of her life. It was only about that transaction in that moment. See, when you have your worship become self-centered instead of Christ-centered, what was holy becomes unholy. And what we think is worship is not really worship. Matthew says in uh, chapter 15, quoting Jesus, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. Friends, in this time where we are at home, in this time where we can't be together, can we believe that the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us about our worship? that it's personal, that it's authentic, that it comes from the heart, that it honors the Lord, that we believe that the Lord is worthy, that he created everything, that he gives us life and meaning and purpose, and that how we act the rest of the week determines how we worship every day of the week, not just a moment on Sundays or this token forgiveness or confession that we think we're asking God for. So as I pray, I invite us to also listen to the Holy Spirit. We'll have a few moments of silence after I pray and just invite the Spirit to speak to you about where you're at, about where your life has been all leaves and no fruit, about where you've allowed externally the political, economic, and religious practices to corrupt our worship and where inwardly we've also allowed the political, economic, and religious practices to corrupt our worship. So Lord, you are worthy. And we thank you that you get to be teacher in our life, that you get to be prophet in our life, and that Lord, you are also priest in our life, that you make a way for us to be with God. Uh, Do you tell us that your temple is not an external temple anymore, that, that actually the Holy Spirit now resides in us that say yes to Jesus and our bodies have become the holy temple. God may, may our mind, our body, and our spirit actually interact with your spirit about how we are to live, how we are to work, and how we are to worship in this time. For you, Lord, alone are worthy of our worship. And we say amen and thank you to you. God, speak to us in this moment about how we are to live and how we are to see you. We love you, God. 
We want to see your good happening in us and in the world. Amen.